Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 103 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Happy 4th of July weekend. We have three cases this week, so that's a good thing, and we'll see as the summer starts to unfold what that looks like going forward, but for now, we have sufficient cases. Our first case today is in the fourth out of the 4th District of Illinois, Hudson versus Pate. We'll get into that, to the uh, modern uh, Hatfields and McCoys uh, version of that. Uh, the second case today is Payne Elliott versus Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis, Inc., an Indiana Supreme Court case dealing with a firing of a, a teacher at a school. And uh, our third case is first from the First District in Capital Construction Solutions versus Selective Insurance Company of South Carolina. Turning to our first case today, does the open and obvious doctrine apply to the determination of duty in ordinary negligence cases? in the same way that it applies in premises liability cases. That is the question that was answered in the affirmative by the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District in Lee versus Lee, and will now be addressed by the 4th District in Hudson versus Pate. There are many disputes between the Hudsons and the Pates. They are turning into the modern Hatfields and McCoys. The plaintiff, a minor, suffered a fractured leg when the defendant who she was assisting in watering plants pulled the hose, causing her to fall. Uh, the circuit court applying the open and obvious doctrine to determine if a duty existed, granted summary judgment in favor of the defendant, and the plaintiff appealed. Pat, tell us about these families in this case in particular. Thanks, Dan. So this is our second go around with the Hudsons and the Pate. We first talked about these feuding families on episode 37. And at that time, we dealt with a defamation case. <laughs> so going back, the, uh, the, the these, par- these families apparently were close until they weren't when this young lady suffered a, by all accounts, right. really freak and frankly awful leg fracture as a result of this water hose incident. Um, it doesn't seem that it was intentional, but it did cause her this, this injury that, uh, is pretty severe. So the defamation case was, arose out of an email that was written to the employer of, of Mike Hudson, in which it says, I would like to to ask to be removed from any mailing lists owned by your company or agents. This includes emails, sales, Christmas cards, time changes, etc. Due to a personal issue with one of your agents, Mike Hudson, who we will no longer be dealing with Berkshire, Berkshire, the uh, uh, real estate brokerage house. Uh, it is my opinion that his pursuit for financial gain at the expense of friends and neighbors makes him, as well as anyone he represents, uh, persons with whom we choose not to interact or be exposed to. Thank you for your understanding, Matt Pate. And that email was found not to be defamatory per se, uh, 
but it arises out of this dispute. And now we know more about this dispute. So what happened in this case, as Dan mentioned, as I referenced a moment ago, is uh, a teenager like was assisting, I, I think it was another teenager in watering some house around the Pates uh, household. And her foot in some way either became entangled or, or what have you in this hose and she falls. The trial court granted summary judgment to the defendants, finding that the hose was an open and obvious uh, condition, and therefore there was no duty owed to the plaintiff uh, that could give rise to a claim for negligence. So during the or now we talked about, uh, or we had we didn't talk about. I've written about this case, Lee versus Lee. Now I've got I posted about this this morning and linked to my post about Lee versus Lee and I originally didn't read Lee versus Lee back when it came out because I thought it was a divorce case. This is from 2019. I said Lee versus Lee is a divorce case. I saw a post about it later. I think it was in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin that it was actually about two guys that decided it was a good idea to lash two ladders together in order to deal with a dying what can go wrong? of a tree at the church that they belong to. <laughs> And let's just say that didn't end well, um, or they knew each other through church and it was on this guy's <laughs> land. I'm sorry. And, and that didn't end well uh, because it turns out you shouldn't lash ladders together. Uh, and the court held that that was in an open and obvious condition, even though it was an activity, not a condition on the land. Now, usually when we think of conditions on the land. We think about holes. We think about, uh, you know, so, something. Sludge pits. Uh, we think about it, steps. We've talked about that. Uh, with the fellow who was admiring admiring the tractors right you know we think about uh, we think about these kinds of things and the duty that a landowner owns comes from section 343 of the restatement second of torts from 1965 that has been long adopted in illinois and arising out of that the one of the justices asked a couple questions he says is it your contention this is to counsel for plaintiff that the difference between premises liability and ordinary liability is that in a premises liability case, the defendant is alleged to have maintained a dangerous condition, whereas in, in an ordinary liability case, the defendant is alleged to have caused the dangerous condition. And then he further went, went a step further and says the open and obvious doctrine applies in ordinary negligence cases, but only when the alleged cause of injury is a condition on the land instead of the defendant's act of negligence. And this would be make the distinction between a car accident case. You know, a car accident case, doesn't occur on anyone's land. Well, usually it occurs on the government's land. It's just called right. street. Uh, usually the government owns the land on which the the, the uh, uh, car accident occurs. And so it's the action of the defendant who makes the left-hand turn or does something that causes the action. He's speeding, something like this. Fails to break, what, what have you. But there's a comment to Section 343. And section three, the comment says, a possessor, a possessor of land is not liable to his invitees, for which this young lady clearly was, for physical harm caused by them by any activity or condition on the land whose danger is known or obvious to them unless the possessor should anticipate the harm despite knowledge or obviousness. So these, th this knowledge or obviousness incorporates the two exceptions to the open and obvious doctrine, namely the distraction exception and the deliberate encounter exception, which don't apply here. Um, so this idea is, is that they really are uh, 
where you're dealing with an activity on the land as watering plants are, uh, that this is subject to the open and obvious doctrine. That's at least the argument that the trial court bought. Let's just say the appellate court, or at least one of the justices of the appellate court, wasn't buying it. There was only one justice who asked questions of the panel uh, uh, on the panel. I'm the not other, either. The other two, and I'm not sure who that justice was. To be honest, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't pick out his voice. He was not, he was not the presiding justice, uh, and I, and I couldn't, I, I can't with certainty say who it was. I know it's a voice I recognize. I'm just not familiar enough with his voice to add, to, to recall who it was or to figure out who it was. But in any event, he didn't seem to be buying the idea. The Lee case didn't come up, but what did come up was a case, uh, were some other cases and Section 343 and the exception. So uh, it, it's a very interesting situation. And if the 4th District reverses, you may see a split uh, between the districts, between the 2nd and the uh, and the 4th. There also is a 4th District case that, that was referenced also as well. So there's, it, it's... The open and obvious doctrine has been under attack uh, for obvious reasons, pun intended, uh, by the plaintiffs. It is. It's a very powerful defense for premises liability defendants. We'll see if uh, where this goes, if if the if there is going to be this split or if the circuit. I agree with you, Pat. I, th- I think it's and, interesting. Uh, what, what are your like I said, only one justice asked questions, so we're not going to get like we might if this was a Justice Hyman panel. We're not going to get any kind of insights from the from the bench of what the other two justices think about this case. Um, but I do think, you know, I, I think in this situation, again, don't know the exact facts, but like you said, it didn't seem intentional. You know, he pulled the hose. I, I have a hard time seeing how, how you could be liable for, you know, negligence or something in this type of situation. And, you know, but, you know, it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough case, I think. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I, I can certainly, I mean, I can certainly I, see how someone could be negligent for tripping someone with a hose. Right. The question is, is did they owe them a duty in the first instance? It's important to keep right. in mind that open and obvious is it goes to the duty element, which is a question of law, and is not a is not usually. Yeah, that's what I was. That, that, that's what I was trying to get at. Is is again um, in this situation, you just. Um, again, I, I find it hard to see how you would have a duty to, you know, uh, in this situation. But like we said, we'll see. It, it, indeed, it's a uh, it's an interesting case. It's one to keep an eye on because this is going to have a, an impact well beyond this particular case. This is one that really raises substantial policy questions and that's why it's the subject of well, that's surprising this week coming up in the <laughs> law bulletin open and obvious it, yeah surprising it it it, uh, it it gets lets me get on two of my hobby horses namely the open and obvious doctrine and yep. the lack of a foreseeability instruction in the ipis i think so you have but, I, I but have uh, it's an important topic it's an important so topic especially for uh, uh like you I said both both sides of the equation for defendants, it is, but also for plaintiffs, depending on how this comes out. So it sure is. I agree. <laughs> Indeed. So with that, we'll take our first break <laughs> and come back with segment two, another piece of deja vu. 
We're back for segment two of episode 103 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And it is. Uh, this is a case, a situation we've heard before. Uh, we've got a few cases involving religious employment and firings, specifically involving the Catholic Church. This will be the second such case we've covered on the show, but the third such one uh, that's come up in recent in the recent past, both in Illinois and in Indiana. This one is from the Indiana Supreme Court, and the first issue, as we've discussed many times in the podcast, is whether they should take the case at all. Transfer is always the first issue, uh, or may, I should say, many times the first issue if they haven't granted transfer prior to prior to oral argument. The Indiana Supreme Court provides a very helpful summary of its cases, as does the Indiana Appellate Court, for that matter. So I'll read that. Uh, Payne Elliott. Uh, a German teacher at Cathedral High School in Indianapolis entered into a same-sex marriage in 2017. This is me. Uh, I, I hear the Catholic Church frowns. Yeah, they do. That, that's that's my understanding. Um, Cathedral later renewed his teaching contract for the 2019-2020 school year, but soon terminated his employment. Payne Elliott sued the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis, claiming that it intentionally and without justification interfered with his contract and employment relationship by threatening to withhold its recognition of Cathedral as a Catholic high school if Cathedral continued to employ a teacher in same-sex marriage. Citing several First Amendment doctrines, the Archdiocese moved to dismiss, and the Marian Superior Court dismissed the lawsuit with prejudice. The Court of Appeals reversed and remanded for further proceedings, and now transfer is, is uh, pending. The Archdiocese has petitioned the court to accept jurisdiction over the appeal. I will say, a couple weeks ago, there was a, a, a Catholic high school, I want to say in Massachusetts, that lost its accredit, lost its imprimatur as a Catholic school for flying a gay pride flag and a Black Lives Matter flag. Uh, so this is not something unknown uh, to occur if the church is not, or if the school, rather, is not upholding church teachings and is... The no. parent of a child that goes to a Catholic school—that's not surprising. Uh, you know, the the—I think there's something like ten priests at her school, and every you know she's on a she's on a team that travel you know an academic team that travels around, and a priest is with them everywhere they go, and holds mass if they're over a weekend, and and offers offers uh, you know no. mass every morning if they want. So. Sure, and Pat, I'm a, I'm a uh, Roman Catholic, I think, as you know. Uh, the one thing I'll say about the, the, the Catholic Church, like many organizations, they're very inconsistent. Uh, for example, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich's wife, I mean, he's a multi-married person, uh, was the ambassador to the, to the uh, Vatican, so go figure. Elon Musk, who's had uh, several kids from several different parents and, and, and ladies, uh, was at with the Pope yesterday with his three of his sons. So again, it's it. But on on the flip side of things, uh, the Pope just gave just gave just well, gave, right. Uh, just, yeah. So it's again inconsistent. Let's just so say. It, it, uh, but but again, it's you know like any organization, it makes the rules. It's 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 in charge. So uh, the the. It also might be that us well, sinners well, are the ones that need, correct. Need In any event, let, like I said, I don't so. want to get into the politics of, of the church or anything else. You know, we, we, we can go on all day about all no, kinds of, of inconsistencies, not. but that's not the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. 
the the one thing that's that, that's a, a bit different about this case, Pat. You talked about some other cases that have come up recently. Is that this is not uh, about a wrongful termination per se, uh, although he was fired. In this instance, what happened and what's being alleged, it's not a. It's not. It's not. It's a tortious it interference uh, with contract. And what happened, as you case. mentioned, is the Archdiocese of, of uh, Indiana, Indianapolis, uh, allegedly, because we don't know, uh, and we'll get into, allegedly uh, sent out an edict that this uh, individual, this uh, well-liked German teacher, as you mentioned, who got married in 2017, got a renewal contract in 2019, uh, w w was fired. Um, and what the uh, church and the archdiocese is, is arguing here is that this is ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical uh, uh, and, and uh, ministerial uh, functions. And so based on the uh, alleged allegations in the complaint, what they're arguing is that those allegations in the complaint uh, uh, hit on the elements of an affirmative defense of the archdiocese that it's, again, it's a religious matter, self-contained. We've talked about that before. That was in those Title VII case, the Title VII case we mentioned and discussed that uh, the churches, uh, again, they have the ability to make these decisions based on religious edicts and their policies and procedures. As Pat said, same-sex marriage, not, not something that's uh, part of the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so the question here is really, and, and some of the justices in this case, I, I, uh, was it Slaughter that was presiding? I always get these voices bad. She did not participate. Well, the, the key is that Chief Justice Rush, for whatever reason, wasn't presiding, yeah. which leads me to believe, because I believe she's from Marion, that she may have yeah. some connection yeah. to the diocese or to the or cathedral. And so she may be recused in this particular situation. Yeah. So and, and it was interesting because was uh, one of the advocates uh, referred to him as Chief Justice, and he said, oh, you're going to get me in trouble here. Uh, but it was uh, the, the, the other thing I'll say, and again, I, I, the voices sometimes, I, I listened to the audio, I didn't watch the, the video piece of it, um, but it was a very uh, warm introduction by the retiring justice. He thanked all the other justices, the advocates over the years, he thanked his family. It was a very nice kind of going out for him. I think this is probably his last argument, it sounded like, or soon to be last argument. And so kind of a nice thing. Um, but but uh, like the uh, appellant was the Archdiocese of, Chicago, uh, of Indianapolis. Um, and, and what they said was the plaintiff seeks to empower the court to uh, investigate internal re religious rules. Um, and that that's a core act of church governance. Um, the... Uh, again, what they were looking at is tortious interference and internal controls. Um, the uh, right out of the gate, the, the strong argument for the archdiocese was that uh, neither the plaintiff nor the trial court uh, or the appellate court cited in any briefs or in any rulings uh, to one instance anywhere in the country where uh, this was was allowed to proceed. I think that the, the, the uh, retiring justice and some of the other justices, though, I think their skepticism here had to do with the fact that uh, absolutely no discovery was allowed here. The position of the archdiocese is, is that you uh, it it's, can be uh, on a motion to dismiss some discovery. Well, they had answered some of the discovery. They had answered yeah. some of the discovery. 
but the stuff they really wanted, they didn't answer, and that's because it gets. Yeah, but the, the, the issue is, is that uh, that the archdiocese was saying, you know, the the, the plaintiffs uh, pled here based on knowledge and belief. And one of the justices asked, "Well, they don't. You, you didn't give them the edict, right, or the directive? Uh, they're uh, alleging based on notice pleadings what they believe." And so I think there was again questions about the, uh, the discovery. The one thing that I think the plaintiff asked for in this case that probably is is problematic from their end uh, was all instances of any policy or rule violations and what the discipline was. As we talked about earlier uh, when I when I started talking about this, the church may be inconsistent. And so what the plaintiffs were driving at is. You know, are there other same-sex marriages like like Pat talked about? Are there people that are divorced? You know, is there people like like Nancy Pelosi that's pro-choice and and, and uh, was given given uh, communion? And, and that's one place where the church said absolutely not, right? That, that you can't get into that. There's case law on this. Uh, there was a case that they everybody kept referring to. Uh, Riskowskis is that the name of it? Pat, did you get the? Uh, yeah, and and and. Uh, Again, that was on a summary judgment uh, uh, pleadings, but uh, the uh, the argument of, of the archdiocese advocate was that these cases must be resolved as early as possible. Again, because it's church autonomy, and and the courts should not be getting into the mix. And their argument is is that even with some of the discovery and some of these instances, that if you permit it, then again it gets into uh, internal church policy and their uh their their beliefs and their policies and again with the separation uh there, there, there's issues there um the, the one thing i'll say and, and and pat i'm interested in your perspective is, is that i th i thought that the archdiocese position may have been a little bit strident because it's 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 just taken on faith that something is done for a non-nefarious religious uh, code reason and again, I think some of the justices were kind of struggling with that. They said, where is the, you know, where's the bright line here, right? You know, we get that there's kind of this religious uh, power and, and, and internal uh, values. Uh, but at the same time, if, if somebody can just come into court um, and, and what the archdiocese was comparing this to was, was qualified immunity, which we've talked about extensively. And, and one of the justices said, well, this is a little bit different. And I think the advocate for the plaintiff said, this is a little bit different. Uh, this is not exactly the same uh, type of thing. you know. Um, and even on qualified immunity, as we've talked about in this show repeatedly, there's some discovery, there's some investigation of whether the allegations and defenses and, and positions of the uh, municipalities are in fact uh, you know, what they say they are, right? Because otherwise what you get into here is you could get, get a, a litigant coming into court and just saying, this is based on religious policies and practices done, right? There's, um, and I think some of the justices kept trying to probe that, like, okay, if that is in fact the case, then how does a case ever proceed, right? And, and they gave some examples, the uh, advocate for the archdiocese of, of some uh, things that could, could lead to more discovery, but they were, they were very narrow. So, Pat, your thoughts? The, the, as we saw in Demkovich case, which we discussed on episode 9 and 43 of the show, the Archdiet, the Catholic Church has taken a very hard line on this because there really isn't room for them 
to wiggle here. Um, and, and yeah. I and I think I can I think I think you can understand why. When people think of civil court, they see okay, this is two private parties. But at the end of the day, it still invokes the power of the government. Because if someone loses and you don't pay the judgment, ultimately people are going to come take property and assets or put people in jail until they pay. Ultimately, even in a civil case, the power of the government is implicated, which is why, even though this is a civil matter, it still has First Amendment implications. Yeah. The uh, and that can't be forgotten. I'll, you know, one of the first time, the first time I came across ecclesiastical abstention or some sort of defense along the lines of, of, of not entangling the courts with the um, with the church was in a case I, I was I, I have no I, I don't remember what the particular facts were, but it it I remember hearing this and really kind of wondering about why this was in Chancery Court in Cook County, you know, basically it was a firing of a priest or something along these lines. And there, the, the, the lawyer for the church is saying, and this, I don't, I think it was the Episcopal Cathedral here downtown in Chicago, not the Catholic Church, and simply saying, you can't be involved in this. And the court going, yeah, we can't be involved in this. And periodically you would come across, and this would particularly happen in Protestant denominations of small churches where you'd have in the Chancery Division, you'd have the you'd have the courtroom full of parishioners that were fighting over who had control of the church and the, of this particular parish, this particular church, by this little this little like storefront church or something. And the the court would be filled with parishioners on a Tuesday morning that were fighting over the control of this church. And the court going, "I'm not getting involved in this. This deals with you know who the bishop is or who the pastor is or how you guys are going to spend your money. I'm not getting involved in this." And this really isn't that much different. So they've really got a set of, you know, the, the plaintiff, kudos to the plaintiff for pleading something that isn't under Title VII, that isn't employment discrimination. This is contract. And so they're trying to get around the ecclesiastical abstention doctrines, uh, just broadly speaking. And, administer, and that includes ministerial exception yeah. and things of this nature. I don't know if they're going to be successful um, because it's very hard for the courts to get themselves involved with what the what the bishop or the art the uh, I don't know if it's a cardinal or not in Indianapolis, but at the very least, the head of the archdiocese there, if he want you know, frankly, the church's position is we're allowed to pick who our who are who the teachers are, um, and if we don't like this guy being, it doesn't matter what the reasons are. Now it happens that he's in a protected class, but it doesn't matter uh, if if they don't want him yep. teaching the faith, then they doesn't teach the faith. Yeah, yeah. Even if he is teaching yep. German. That's their position. We'll see how it goes. No, no, that's kind of Anything else on that, Dan? Okay. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three. A lot to talk about there. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
Welcome back to segment three of episode 103 of the Podium and Panel panel podcast. Our third case today is capital construction. You know, in all the all the time we've done this, this is the first time we got. Yeah, our yeah I don't. I don't know what's going on today. I, I, probably I just. I, I ate. I ate a, an early lunch today. Uh, my son has to work, and so maybe just having a, a, a lot of protein in my brain. <laughs> I don't know what the hell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, in any event, the even panel podcast. It shouldn't be a, a tongue twister. <laughs> Targeted tender and the interaction with other insurance. Clauses is the issue to be addressed by the Illinois Appellate Court, First District, and Capital Construction Solutions versus Selective Insurance Company of South Carolina. And and believe it or not, occasionally Pat and I have an insurance case. Go figure. Uh, the, yeah, right. The other insurance clause in the selective policy, which was oh, issued God. to the subcontractor, stated, quote, this coverage shall be excess with respect to the person included as an additional insured. Any other insurance that person has should be primary unless coverage under the selective policy is to be primary, end quote. Always well stated, these other insurance provisions, I uh, litigated these in the 90s, and uh, yeah, in any event. Um, the subcontract required the subcontractor to purchase general liability insurance, and the general contractor, Capital Construction, had umbrella coverage. There was an underlying personal injury suit arising out of an injury that occurred on the construction site, and a dispute over coverage arose. Go figure out that too, right? Never, never uh, first time for that. Counsel for the appellant argued that the reference to the purchase of general liability insurance and the subcontract necessarily meant that the selective policy purchased by the subcontractor would be primary. There was also a targeted tender by capital of the selective policy. The appellant also argued that the other insurance clauses of the policies issued by County Mutual, Country Mutual and insurer of capital, Westfield, also issued a policy to the capital, and selective po- policies canceled each other out as they were all access clauses, which often is the case as well. Um, the trial court entered summary judgment, right? They're all access over everything Everybody's else, which is you know like rock, paper, scissors, uh, constant ties. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of selective and against capital and country mutual. And this appeal followed. Illinois has the minority targeted tender rule under John Burns versus Indiana Insurance, which Pat will tell us about. And Pat, tell us about the tender rule in this case in particular. Thanks, Dan. So why don't we start with the targeted tender rule, which seemed to be the focus of the of Country Mutual's argument and seemed to be tossed aside by at least one of the justices. Uh, so the targeted tender rule says that an insured who has multiple options for coverage at the same layer. So if they have three options of primary coverage, you can say, I deselect these two and I select you to be primary. And then you have what's called horizontal exhaustion under a case called Kojima before you go to the excess layers of coverage. In other words, you can't go to an excess carrier and say, hey, excess carrier, you're primary. That, that's not on the menu. But if you figure out that there's co- carrier A, B, and C are all primary layers of coverage available to one insured, an insured can say, all right, I'm selecting you A. And usually what happens is, is the insured selects a carrier that is not their own because they don't want to raise their own premiums. They want to push off the defense costs to somebody else. Um, and that way they can do that. Now, 
This is, as, as Dan said, an extraordinarily minority position. It may be a minority of one uh, in Illinois. It's, I know it's been rejected in other states. It's a, it's, it's a crazy rule. It's, it is. It's, it's, I don't know where they came up with it. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, but that's the rule in Illinois. And you then have these other insurance clauses in these policies that all seem to say, well, we're excess if they've got other coverage, which in this circumstance, the argument was, well, that means that they all cancel each other out. So they're all primary and therefore you could select. And the trial, the appellate court didn't seem to be, didn't seem to be buying that. Um, and the, didn't seem to be buying that Don Burns had anything to do with this case because the language of the policies was different and that maybe limiting John Burns to only situations that had language similar to that. The other argument that was interesting, and again, not sure where this is, how successful this is going to be, they said, well, the subcontractor was supposed to buy general liability insurance. And the suggestion was, well, that means primary coverage to cover the the general contractor. And while I get the logic of it's not what the contract says. It says buy general liability insurance. It didn't say buy, buy liability, CGL coverage, general liability insurance that is primary and non-contributory. It didn't say that. It could have. It doesn't. Uh, it, 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 it could have tried to override any right. option under John Burns. It could have done all kinds of things. It did none of those things. Um, it just said buy a CGL policy. They did, and then the question is priority of coverage. So always fun, insurance companies fighting with each other over who gets to pay. It's unclear what happened in the underlying case and how this coverage issue kind of uh, influenced how that case turned out, but uh, this is an important issue to keep an eye on uh, because this may either narrow or expand how John Burns works, and so it's uh, it's an interesting case to keep an eye on. Now, you know, other than... Like I said, I dealt with these when I was a young litigator, other insurance provisions, uh, the the law in Illinois and other insurance provisions for many years, even with notwithstanding John Burns was a mess in terms of primary and how you sort through what's primary and excess and all this stuff. Um, But also uh, when I went in house uh, in the late 90s after working uh, on those cases. Yeah, that's right. Right. So after you were outhouse, you went you have out. yeah, and I've I've I, 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 I haven't stayed but, outhouse uh, my whole career. The uh, the interesting thing is, is on these, <laughs> it always happens with these contractors and subcontractors because that's where you know injuries occur and these big construction sites and all this cost over all this stuff, and you would think that you know 50, 60 years into these types of disputes, like you said, the contract could be very clear, right? It could say. And some contracts do, right? You know, subcontractor must have insurance. It's primary, blah, blah, blah. You weren't additional insured, the general, all this stuff. In this case, it doesn't seem like it did. And so it will be a, a, a it was, it was. Well, I think that's what the John Burns rule was designed to try to deal with. And, and we had a client at a former firm of mine where they, they targeted the market construction market that was kind of in between. So they would be the, the subcontractor that would directly contract with okay. the contractor, the general contractor, and then they would have subs. So they were in the middle. <laughs> and they were getting John yeah. Burns tenders from both ends. 
and the, so they got out of the market. They just they yeah. could They were getting. They would get John Burns tenders from everybody, and they were just getting killed with defense costs. So they got out of the market entirely because they had created this niche for themselves in the market that they were yeah. selling, and then they just got crushed with defense costs. So it's you. you yeah, it's, a, a it's tough. Plan, the whole thing is is very happened. tough, and uh, also with limits and additional insureds, and you know, a, a lot of insurers don't charge for that because that's the industry norm. And then, you know, again, on these these massive projects and like you're talking about with the subcontractor in between, that there's all kinds of layers of who's an additional insured and is it primary? I mean, it's it just gets into some, some crazy stuff. So with that, we'll turn to our our business interruption. For sure. Uh, the the biggest thing was, I think, Pat, that uh, another state highest court uh, Washington State in this instance heard oral arguments in the pediatric dental COVID-19 case in our comparisons. Nah, nah, yeah, That's nah, right? I mean, it seemed like, like a lot of the initial appellate court decisions were dental practices. Um, let's just say the justices in this oral argument were skeptical were. on the arguments of the policyholder, trying to compare it to fire and, and other types of uh, natural disasters and things. And, uh, uh, not really buying uh, buying uh, the policyholders' arguments here, which is really important because if the policyholders are going to win, it's probably Washington any State Supreme Court in this state in this country. It's Washington State. Washington State is one of the most favorable jurisdictions in the country for policyholders, and if right. they can't win here, now maybe they will. You know, you can't read too much from oral arguments if this show has proved anything. But if they can't win there... So that's a big case to watch, I agree. Winning in any state Supreme Court. And then uh, last week, we saw the society case in the first district on COVID-19. Was society prevailing? This was a uh, uh, Judge uh, Jacobius, I think, was the trial court uh, uh, ch- chancery. He's now retired, but uh, uh, he had a lot of these cases... It was a consolidation, yeah, and and there there would probably be other cases from him. I, I was uh, a mentor to one of his clerks, and a lot of the cases because he's chancery went through uh, Jacobius and similar types of consolidations with other insurers, and those things will be coming if they haven't already been piped through the system. So, um, yeah, yeah, he had he right. was the chief judge right. of the chancery division, and he kept some of these for himself. And one other one before we move on is uh, a New Jersey appellate court, another usually very pro-policyholder court um, held for insurers. Uh, That's obviously not the final word on the situation, um, but it is uh, another win for insurers in a state court of review. And I think that was the New Jersey court of review. I think that's right. And and, and Pat, uh, you know, it was a a district court. Um, uh, federal District Court of New Jersey, but it, the, the ammonia case came out of New Jersey. Uh, that's been, was used in the initial cases that, about the ammonia and the refrigeration of a, of a plant. The ammonia got out and uh, was covered on, under, you know, the the federal court of New Jersey applying New Jersey law. So, like you said, a, fa- a favorable jurisdiction for insur- for policyholders, and uh, so that came out. So, uh, not, not a good week for uh, for policyholders at the state court level. 
indeed. So that brings us to yeah. our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. And we are now tied uh, 156 and a half, 28 and a half, and eight for each of us. <laughs> um, and, and I say that because initially we weren't tied. Originally, I went down one because in Greenpoint Tactical versus Allen Pettigrew, this is a case that dealt with alleged misrepresentations right. or incomplete statements in a warrant application. And the court affirmed the trial court in in dismissing the claims. The trial court had found there was no Bivens theory. The appellate and we, we had predicted, I had said that they would find a Bivens claim and reverse. Dan said that they would affirm finding that there was no Bivens claim. Well they did find there was a Bivens claim, but still revert, but still affirmed finding that the, the AUSA was covered by absolute prosecutorial immunity and the FBI agent was covered by qualified immunity. So we had only discussed, because the oral argument had really only focused on the Bivens issue. Uh, Bivens is the, the implied right of action against federal officers that has been narrowed to only include Fourth Amendment right. context. This case was emphatically a Fourth Amendment case, although it, there it was an unwarranted search. Here it was a, a warrant, a, a search with a warrant, but a warrant that was procured allegedly with misrepresentations. And the court said, yeah, you can't do that, but you still can't sue these officers. So um, because of prosecutorial immunity, which is bupkis, and qualified immunity, which is bupkis. And I say right. that right. because Bivens is probably bupkis. But, <laughs> I mean, even though I'm saying, I think you should be able to, I mean, if, how can it be that you can have your constitutional rights violated by any officer, yeah. whether it's a federal officer, a state officer, a local officer, and have yeah. no remedy? I don't need to imply a right of action. I can read the Constitution. Why, you know, do I, do I really need a, a, a statutory cause of action? I have a Constitution. And why prosecutors get, right. prosecutorial immunity is derived from absolute judicial immunity. Prosecutors aren't judges. Prosecutors. Uh, and qualified immunity, that's a whole other, that's a bird of a whole different feather that comes to us in 1983, is made completely out of whole cloth and has, and especially in the context where right. you're not talking about the split second decision making stuff, where the officer shoots the guy in a split second. Okay, I can almost, even though I rejected it, I can almost understand it there. Here you're talking about a guy, right. a, a FBI agent, who allegedly lied on an affidavit. This was not a split-second decision. Now, again, we have to take the allegations as true. I don't know if any of it's true, but it to the extent right. to the extent what he did, it wasn't done split-second. It was it was a, a thought-out process. He signed an affidavit to support a warrant application, uh, and it turned out the case as one of the justices or judges said at the appellate argument. Uh, it was case fell apart because there wasn't anything there. Right. As it turned out. And we'll, we'll, and we'll see along these lines uh, what, what future Supreme Court's uh, terms have in store. Uh, there's a decision this. this... Right. No, no. And, you know, uh, th this term, they looked at Miranda and said, even if you, you don't give Miranda, again, there's no really no effective uh, remedy for you. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, that's the Tico case, and and I think that there it just it just I think reaffirms that Miranda is a trial right. In other words, we can beat you with a wet noodle in a phone book, 
but that doesn't uh, that doesn't implicate your Miranda rights so long as they don't use the court statement at trial. I don't know if you if you look at the okay. facts of Tico. That's, I mean, I, sure again, that's the right that Miranda we, would protect. We're not going to cover that here, but but yeah, it's uh, we shall see. They didn't use they didn't use the statement at trial, okay. so therefore there wasn't a there wasn't a violation. It's like okay, yeah. yep. I thought the I thought the right being protected was a bit broader than that, but okay. And that's one of those. That's not one of those unenumerated right. ones. That's the one that's in the that's in the document. It's like right there. It says you can't be forced to testify against right. yourself, which right. means you can't beat a beat a confession out of the fellow. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so then we come to McGoey versus Brace, which dealt with a land dispute. Fences <laughs> make good neighbors until they don't, uh, and the court held that a, a Illinois appellate court can retain jurisdiction for as long as it wants to right to enforce a settlement this as was long the, as it doesn't and who this knew? was judge hyman uh, who, who was then judge hyman who in the settlement order said ret- retains jurisdiction or a successor now which again we'll yeah, seems forever now right so good luck i know settlement agreement right was it was in the I know it was in the settlement right. agreement that was reached with his with that was reached it's, with his it's assistant. it's uh we got it right but uh I, probably I, I, shouldn't I have <laughs> it's it's yeah well I I I, I I think this dovetails with the next case Holt versus City of Chicago is and it also dovetails with something that has been repeated by this justice who we talked about in segment one in the uh, Hudson case. That's true. They're very sympathetic to trial judges because most of them used to be trial judges. Right. And they don't want to strip trial judges of their authority, which is what happened, which was what the issue was really in Holt versus City of Chicago. This is the case we talked about last week. And just so... Second the, district. The first district has now taken to doing what the first district, the second district used to do, which, which is, they, they it's a 40-some page opinion. They plainly had that written before they got to the oral argument. And they don't actually answer the question. Now, they held that there wasn't a, that there was no, that the directed verdict was properly entered and that the court could do it. So this is the case where the motion for directed verdict is made, it's reserved, the case is submitted to the jury, the jury enters its verdict, and 45 minutes later, the trial court enters a directed verdict, notwithstanding the absence of a post-trial motion. They say you can do that, but they say that only because, I think, the plaintiff waived their arguments under 12, section 2-1201 and under 301 and 303 of the, the Supreme Court rules. You put all those together, I don't see how they come to this conclusion. Um, and they, you can't read 1201 that says promptly upon the entry right. of the jury's verdict, judgment shall be entered thereon. How you can say the judge can then enter a directed verdict when 1202 says any post-trial challenge has to be done by post-trial motion. Um, yep. They just, that basically was waived and off, and off we go. Uh, and then they found that for the next 30 some plus pages, they articulate why there wasn't evidence of all of the elements of 
of uh, malicious prosecution. Got it right, and yeah, it's not a fan yeah, of this ruling, but we got it right. It seems to um, to not, uh, as we talked about last episode, seems to not follow what the what what the rule says. But in any event, there you have it. Which brings us to Peoria Ice Cream versus Zosky from episode 78, where uh, we were joined by Steve Schultz. Sure, this was a, a Peoria Ice Cream had filed a tort liability also. suit against Zosky, uh, alleging trespass and negligence for failing to remove or remediate environmental contaminants from its property ahead of a sale. Uh, uh, Peoria Ice Cream Company was a, uh, what, what brand is it? Uh, Dairy Queen. Yeah, thank you. Well, why I'm not thinking of Dairy Queen. I was thinking of uh, Baskin Robbins for some reason. A, a jury found for Zosky's uh, on both claims, and plaintiff uh, Peoria Ice Cream uh, argued on appeal that the trial court erred and denied denying its motion for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict or a new trial on the claim of trespass based on an improper jury instruction regarding statute of limitations. And then uh, Peoria Ice Cream had some alternative uh, arguments of why uh, the trial court abused its discretion uh, on an expert uh, that was allowed to testify uh, on diminution in value. And uh, there was there was prejudicial witness testimony and other things, uh, but uh, the appellate court affirmed the trial court here uh, and, and found in favor of Zosky on his... Uh, not not uh, being tortiously failing to remove contaminants. So with that, why don't we do our prediction? Sure to go wrong for this week, Dan. Uh, I, th I think you're right. Hudson versus Pate. I think that's getting. I, th I, th I think you're right. Based on again. I don't think it should be, on, but I think it will. Uh, the oral arguments. I think that's right. But it, again, it, like I said, it's difficult to predict because only one justice was. It was one of three, like a you know, only one was asking the questions, but he 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 may have the ability to you know, if the other oh, justices weren't got. asking questions, maybe maybe they're fine with what he asked. Yep. Which brings us to Payne Elliott versus Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indiana. I think it does. I, again, I I I. I, I I, as mentioned, I think that there has to be some limit to just being able to make statements because there could be other things at play. But in this case, yeah, I think it gets reversed. And I, I you know, will will we'll, we'll, uh, transfer be granted? I think transfer probably will, does get granted, but it doesn't doesn't matter. But yeah, yeah, they need to touch it, right? Oh yeah, this is a this is a case of they got to decide it. Even if they they've got to they've got to decide this issue. And that brings us to I think Capital it gets affirmed as well. Solutions versus selective. I think this is getting affirmed. Yeah. And I can see that the affirmance happening on any number right. of grounds. Uh, it seems I like agree. we're buying what Country Mutual is selling. Which brings us to the rule of the week, which comes to us from a oral argument in Brighton Properties LLC versus Kids Work, uh, Kids Work Chicago Inc. An eviction case, but that's not the rule. The rule of the week is Illinois Supreme Court Rule 303b2, which says it, and this means this, the it is the notice of appeal, shall specify the judgment or part thereof or other orders appealed from and the relief sought from the reviewing court. <laughs> Dan, why don't you tell us about 
what that rather straightforward rule. Yeah, the, 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 this case, a uh, lot, lot of argument. I listened to, to the entire argument. There was a lot of discussion by the appellant's advocate uh, that there was a substitution of parties, uh, that uh, there was Delaware parties, there was Illinois parties. This is, it has to do with the COVID-19 and whether checks were written or not. Uh, there were, the checks were, right, right, right which we talked about in the East 55 Jackson, in that point. case with the uh, 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 Panera, Rody, Rody, yep. Um, Rody. And uh, this was a Justice Hyman panel, and, and uh, Ju Justice Hyman was, was, was just, and the other justices on this panel were just not buying this whole about the substitution and timing and what they were appealing from and what was before the court. Uh, the, the only thing before the court was use and occupancy, and uh, uh, the, 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 the appellant advocate, I mean, I felt bad for her at times because <laughs> she was just not, she kept trying to argue about this substitution of parties and, and uh, right. Well, she, her argument right. was, well, we didn't get discovery. And Justice right. Simon's like, that's not your notice of appeal. <laughs> you didn't appeal right. from that order. Just, well, all the orders got brought to, no, they don't. They right. have to identify that's what. That's why. That's the rule. Is because you gotta identify. Yes, the final order, and yes, you can. You can't appeal from the interlocutory order denying you discovery. Each and every one of them, right? Judgment. But then you've got to identify from that order. And, and each and every order, right? And what you want yeah. out of that? Order, yeah. Uh, in, in in reviewing, if you don't, and if you don't, your your goose is cooked. And the best practice is right. to identify the order and attach the order to the notice of appeal. You don't have to attach the order, but that's the best practice. Here's the order. This is the one I mean. This one right here. And, and, uh, and uh, attach them so it's very clear. Like you said, that they, they did not uh, appeal uh, some of those orders. Uh, but the other thing in this case, it sounded like the record was uh, not very complete in terms of checks or the leases. The two There's two leases here, one from 2008 and one from another year. They were identical, but uh, at one point... I think it was Justice Hyman asked, you know, don't you think it's important to, to have the actual documents and, and records? Or maybe it was another panelist. This, uh, like I said, this was uh, was not uh, did not go well for uh, for the appellants. And, and but the, like you said, the important rule here is, is you have to. Uh, and again, a lesson like we, we try to impart sometimes you have to be very aware of these rules. And make sure that your records complete, what your appealing is complete, what your arguing is complete. Because if you don't, you waive it, and that's problematic. I, I think in both of these, the last, the whole case, and in this case, experienced appellate counsel is critical. And I think in both cases, these problems could have been avoided if they had experienced appellate counsel involved. And in yeah. fact, when I listened to this, I did check with experienced appellate counsel. I called John Fitzgerald. I said, John, do I have this right? He says, yeah, you got it right. Okay. And he, he's like, it may not be, yep. it's not required to attach the order, but it's the best practice. And I said, yeah, that's what I, that's, I mean, I've handled enough appeals to be dangerous. I am hardly an experienced appellate counsel, but I've done it enough. And you just, you got to make sure you identify what you're appealing from. Because if you don't, you're going to get yeah. this response from Justice Hyman saying, you don't jurisdiction. And when, when, you know, you, you know I mean, we've done have what you many segments in 103 episodes. We've covered probably 250 cases because some were special episodes and 
you know, there are repeat people that we talk about, like John Fitzgerald, Paul Clement, uh, a lot of people, like you said, experienced appellate lawyers. Not only are they, not, yeah, not, not only are they exceptionally talented the at, at the argument pieces and advocating and finding the, the errors, but they also know these procedural rules that are so crucial to having a successful appeal. Um, you know, you, you have to have the, the law and the procedure right uh, because if you get it wrong, then you you may find that you're boxed out of out of uh, justice for your client. And, and, and that's why in big cases right. you'll see an increasingly frequent uh, embedded appellate counsel. Appellate counsel that's sitting at counsel table from the whole the whole through the whole trial to make sure that you don't that you have these issues. And, you know. Your best friend yeah. in trial is your appellate lawyer, and on every, you know, uh, you, you, I, on more than one occasion during trial, I ran to our appellate counsel and said, uh, "How do I preserve this issue? What do I got to do to fix this? You know, how do I make sure I give you a good record to yeah. deal with? Because you're the it, one that's going to be handling this." It, um, it, it, it's crucial, and for you know, for the like, clients, sometimes they want to be you. cost uh, <laughs> penny wise, but uh, again, it's it's what money well spent for those reasons. Indeed. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We'll see everybody next week. Have a great fourth. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.